yeah, so this is the point where I will put in some very spooky music, which is me going, Ooh, that's Ooh. not... Oh, right, okay. We're doing a very, a very special episode. episode today. Yes, because yes, nothing is indeed. scarier than reality right now. So you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, escapism is horror movies now. Yeah, it genuinely oh, is. God, I that, wish this was an apocalypse. That it genuinely is because there's a real catharsis now to just watching the worst things play out through film and being like, well, it's not that bad. You know, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not currently being murdered, so I'm okay. Yeah, and, and like. In in a some sense, at least like the you know the proper apocalypse films, at least there's something interesting happening. You know, you're you're running for your life all the time rather than you're just sat in your house. Yeah, this as apocalypses go, I'd say this is probably the boring kind. But you know, whatever we'll manage. But it, yeah, at least at least we're surviving. That's the yeah. Best you can well, it's a double-edged sword because it's boring, but we also have modern comforts. We are able to watch the films exactly. That they can watch. You know, the there's film. not a lot of. Um, R&R within, you know, Mad Max's wasteland. I don't know, the milk, it looks pretty relaxing when you're drinking that, all of that milk. When you're drinking the milk harvested from humans. Yeah. yeah oh, right, okay. We're, we're sticking with that one. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm doubling down. Right. I would think it's relaxing to drink the, the You milk. can't even finish. <laughs> you, you, you barely even finished that sentence. It seemed like you caught yourself and were like, oh, wait, hang on. Do I really want to yeah. say this online? That is correct. Yeah. I decided against it at the very last second. Also, it's Halloween, almost. So yeah. there's that. It's the spooky season, sort of. If all goes to plan, I will hopefully release this before the 31st yes. of October. But to those hearing this on November 23rd, hello. <laughs> November 23rd, 2021. Yes. I'm so sorry. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we're just talking about a bunch of horror films, and we thought of a way to go around this other than just rambling for an hour. So we've arranged a list of categories, which uh, there's nothing and we've spookier. Also arranged someone to tase us if we yes. go over. There's nothing spookier than categories. So, <laughs> well, it's the opening of the episode, so we've opted for one of them. Well, yeah, there's five. I should clarify as well. We're going through five different tiers of layer for that delicious cake of horror that we've assembled. Yep, that's the strange metaphor we're going with. So this is the opening of the episode, so we're going for our favourite horror openings. Yes. Now, do you want to go first with your list? Uh, how many How many have you got in your immediate list of, of, of films you thought of when you thought of this topic? I mean, I have... There are a couple that spring to mind. Um, the first one I immediately... Even though... Well, I won't... This isn't my main pick, so I won't go into too much detail. But Scream really stood out to me. Oh, but you know what's the top of my list? Is it Scream? It's also Scream. Oh, yes. that's good. Okay, so... Oh, well, we can talk about it in detail then, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. since it's your pick, or yeah, okay, right. We're changing it. Well, You're, I'm for, I'm pushing you off that cliff. You're going first now. Oh, I'm going first now. Well, you I, just mentioned I it. Have said I don't want to. Yeah, you should have kept that in suspense if you wanted to avoid <laughs> what's happened now. I let I let you talk about it for five minutes, and then I go. I also yes, put screen, um, and then I don't say anything. <laughs> you covered everything, so it's fine. Yeah, but no, I think it's um, it's a it's a very solid uh, opening because. Obviously, especially in context of the time that it was released, it was 
it just set the bar at an extremely high level for a film I was gonna, at, that, at that time. Well, I was going to say because, and it's Drew Barrymore, isn't it, as well, who yeah. would have, it would have immediately primed you to think. I mean, you know, like, it's hard to put yourself in the mind of going into a film nearly 25 years old now. But if you think about the context of, okay, Drew Barrymore is a big star. This is, you know, okay, this is her vehicle. Oh, Bad things have happened. Yeah, she's she's gone. Yeah, that's she it. She is done mm. and dusted. And the the fact that she comes so close to be safety as well at the end, and it's just to be snuffed out like that. It's yeah, it's like a whole short film in itself. You know, this sort of quietly suburban tragedy, this burst of violence yeah. that comes from nowhere almost. It really is like a, its own short film. It's like the. Um, like when Whiplash was released as the short film, it feels yeah. like it just encompasses an entire horror movie in one small scene. Yeah, and because there's shifts in dynamic as well, and it it sort of rises and falls, and there's moments of levity, and still that horrible final crushing knife to the heart, literally. Yeah, and because I I love the fact that the scream especially is very good for they kick the crap out of the killer. Like oh yeah. There isn't, it's, it's always, it's never like, oh my God, this is an unstoppable person. It's just, oh, this person just keeps going yeah. when they get kicked in the face and kicked in the balls and yeah. hit with fridges. Yeah. And falls down the stairs and <laughs> hit with a grand piano. Oh no, wait, that's scary movie. That's scary. Yeah. I, it's still very <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, Out of the way, I, grandma. <laughs> yeah, I do. I will be honest and say, I do give scary movie a lot of flack for the fact that it's essentially making fun of a film that's already making fun of horror films, but I still laugh at that opening bit of it yeah, every there, time. That, there's that's always some funny bits yeah. in all the scary movies. And like, as much as I hate them as concept, yeah. Um, yeah. I just, there are some funny bits. Well, it's the sort of thing where you just sort of have to laugh at the absurdity of it. Yeah. Right? Because I, <laughs> I have the same thing with, in a weird way, the Mike Myers cat in the hat, where I just laugh at picturing writers pitching those scenes and then i'm just yeah. think how did this go through the process of being filmed <laughs> like, but, they, they yeah. went through so many different steps to get to the point that we're seeing it yeah how did that happen oh anyway we've gone off track from horror but back to it's scream true. there's that real sense of how quickly it creeps into the home as well i think and i saw yeah talked about that earlier with the fact that her parents come home and she's so close to calling out to them but you feel this genuine sense of safety and then bit by bit it's just pulled out from under you at every turn. It does a very good job of encompassing so many different emotions within a horror scene. In that regard. So that's... And and it's also quite atypical of horror films as well to open with some sort of bloody murder. But it does it so well that it... And it sets up the rest of the film playing with horror tropes in that way. Yeah. And I, I mentioned that because what I put... And, you know, Scream stood out as a big one. But then I thought... I tried to think of one that sort of played against horror conventions in the sense that it begins in a very mundane setting. I did love the opening, and this again, this isn't my pick, I've just lured people in with a non-sequitur. I do love the opening of It Follows, where she runs out of the house and you track her running through the road 
and you don't even you know you don't know what's chasing her you've got no context to it and it's also confusing geographically because she runs out of the house across the road and then back into the same house and it's just yeah. it's just the kind of thing that immediately invites questions yeah like what what yeah. is going on here and what, it's like yeah you're on edge immediately mm. and it's understated in such a way that it's really chilling as well but what i ended up going for is the first scene of carrie because oh. you and again it's very innocuous as horror openings go because it's just the camera hovering over this you know high school volleyball game and then cut to the locker room and realizing that she has when carrie realizes that there's blood going down her legs and the but it's so it taps into such a poignant sense of social anxiety in that because it is just you know any high schooler's worst nightmare yeah brought to it's life. so cripplingly real yeah i think it, and that's it's, what like gets it mm, and it's rooted in so much of what makes the rest of the film great which is just as much being about these sort of very real painfully real abusive emotional turns just as much supernatural powers because there is a supernatural element in that opening scene where at one point she screams and a light flickers but it, it just sort of goes by without being mentioned and yeah, it, like you could absolutely yeah. if you took the um, carrie's telekinetic powers from that film it would just be a regular high school film about a kid being bullied like yeah and that and every time i watch it i sort of even though i know it doesn't happen but part of me gets a little hopeful when the teacher walks in as if oh finally someone who can stop this but because they don't know the context that you know carrie thinks this is this is some because she's never been taught about it so she thinks that this is some sort of horrible thing so the teacher thinks she's being hysterical and just tells her you know get a grip of yourself and and again i'm just like oh just someone please hug her just be <laughs> yeah, nice someone give her the sympathy please yeah and it plays into that awful i already said it but it is just it all comes back to the anxiety of it and the the voyeuristic way De Palma films it as well, it almost makes you culpable as a viewer for even watching it at all. Yeah, like, the um, uh, bystanders are just as much a, yeah. a problem mm. as the actual perpetrators, and it, it makes you feel like you are part of the problem, and you're like, no, I, let me scream at the screen and let me tell her it's okay. Yeah. and oh, Also, I shouldn't be in this changing room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just the setting in itself already puts you on edge more so well not more so than anything that happens but you're immediately primed for this awful thing to happen but it's a relatively normal scene which is so sort of quietly chilling i think absolutely yeah and also there's um god i'm blanking on her name now sissy spacek that's it i was madly yeah. trying to type it and then i thought this is annoying because the instant i it'll come to me that it is um sissy spacek's performance is so great but also terrible because it's so distraught and desperate and genuinely frightened as well yeah absolutely and then of course you know the the rest of the film never really gets any easier. And that makes it all the more painful as well, watching it now, because even if you have seen the entire film and know where it's going, you know that it never really gets any better for her. Yeah, it's not... It's um. There's a certain degree of catharsis with the ending where yeah. she lashes back, and but it's, it's also not a positive thing. That's not what you want. You don't want it to have to be... Because in some degree, it almost gives off the same kind of vibe as, you know, the quiet kid thing that yeah. the trope of the quiet kid who ends up buying the gun and chewing up the school it's the yeah. same kind of narrative just with telekinetic powers instead yeah and also there's there's this this isn't about the opening so much but it relates to how there's this great thing where edgar wright talks about the uh, the famous prom scene and how you know the film gives you so much time to register what's about to happen 
that again even if you've seen it a dozen times you so desperately want it not to you hope that like yeah. oh maybe the bucket won't go over maybe it's just a nice moment and the film will end and she'll be happy and then it just you know bad things again yeah a, a theme that i noticed when doing research for this was that i often found uh, dread is a far more powerful emotion than genuine fear in a lot of films for me yeah seeing something that you is going to happen and you know it's going to happen and it's there waiting to happen is far more scary than something jumping out of you and going but yeah so exploring that theme further um well not really but what scared us as kids I thought... Uh, hey, I, I feel like I've got a couple more opening scenes I want... I just oh, okay, right. Oh, on. yeah. Cool. I, I had a great... Uh, I thought I had a good segue there, and then I realised it wasn't really... There wasn't much meat to it, so... <laughs> That's fine. We'll stumble I'll, I'll, our way I'll pull it this. back. Yes. It, yeah, yeah, it's fine. The, um... And nothing of value was lost by pulling it back, because it was so terrible anyway. <laughs> but no, I think one, one opening scene that really struck a chord with me when I was looking back through a list of things was the opening to 28 weeks later. Oh, right. Yeah. Because I think there's a... That's a different type of fear that you get from that. It's a completely human... It's it's grounded in humanity, that moment. of, But also, it's awful, because it's a husband basically, like, abandoning his family. Yeah. But you, comp- you, like, you understand that fear, but it's the look out the window that the, um, the woman gives... When she's just like, she realises that she's been abandoned and she's going to die. Well, it yeah, it plays to sort of like the worst impulses people tend to have in, you know, when you've the fight or flight crisis, basically, where you're just, yeah. you know, and, it, and as audience members, you tend to hope that you know better than the characters and that you'd be more, you'd have a stronger moral fibre than them and that you're more intelligent and everything. But, you know, there's a sad truth that you're probably not. Yeah. And so I think Again, that, that that's the... Yeah. It's painfully real again. Mm. Like that feels like something that would absolutely happen. It's not a hero moment. It's a no. It's the exact human opposite moment. of well, that and that's a very good place to open it, considering it's a sequel and considering that that's such a big part of Twenty Eight Days Later as well. Of how yeah, through the entire apocalypse, the biggest threat in the third act is just more people. Yeah, you know, we had um, Christopher Eccleston and his whole boot camp thing. I, the worst thing is, is that I still kind of like Christopher Eccleston in that movie. Like, not on a moral level. Yeah, exactly. Because no, he's Christopher like, Eccleston. You think, oh, he's so great. But yeah, then, and then he, you know, he comes the, out and he's a bad person. Yeah. yeah like, oh, it, but, but it's Christopher Eccleston. Mm, so it goes back to that thing I said earlier of um, maybe this is just wish fulfillment. I don't know if other people do this, but when you watch horror films you've seen before and you know the point that it's about to turn, you just there's such a big part of my brain that just thinks maybe he's nice this time. Maybe this Maybe time this is the one. Yeah, this, this time I watch it, and he's just a friendly guy who invites them into his house and is like, "Hey, stay as long as you want. You're fine. Everyone's safe." <laughs> and, uh, the um, another one that yes. I put on my list. Well, because I'm going to run through these quickly. Yes, yeah. But I've got Jaws, which is yeah, of, course, of course is a, mm. a classic opening for that one. Yeah. Not much more to say about that, but just based on the fact that it sets up the tone for the entire film. Yeah. It's 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 masterful, and also. The most recent version of it, the chapter one film. Oh yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that because, especially because it goes so much further than any. I say any other. There's only been the one, but I think killing a child that early on in a film definitely sets a precedent for. Oh, okay, we're not taking any prisoners. Yeah, exactly, and I think that 
child murder yeah. is a good segue oh, into our next section. Wow. That's which impressive. is the, <laughs> the childhood trauma that we oh. suffered from some films. <laughs> well, okay. I don't really have any honourable mentions for this one because I've cheated and it's not a film, it's a television series. Oh. So there's potentially other entries in this series to discuss. But it's... And I think of this... I, I was actually surprised to realise that I was a child when this came out. But I was just 10 years old when this episode first released in 2007, and that is Blink from Doctor Who. Ah, of course. Because it feels like the pinnacle of not just horror within Doctor Who, but Doctor Who as a... It, the entire... I feel any time people talk about the best episodes of, not just the reboot, but of the entire Doctor Who series, this always comes out near the top. And Yeah, definitely. And again, and it did... Maybe this defeats the point of it being a childhood trauma, because I watch it consistently, and every time it still holds up, and it's still terrifying. And I love how it's rooted in the classic Doctor Who monster of it's the thing you can't see, which is mainly for, you know, budget reasons. But also, in this case, it works because it plays to the paranoia you have over what's just out of the corner of your eye. It's one of those few episodes that you can absolutely watch having never seen an episode of Doctor Who, and it still makes sense. It's still... Everything still clicks and connects. Yeah, and I... There was a sense of that at the time as well, because it felt like sort of mini-phenomenon of that year. Because, you know, people who... I can only talk from, you know, being in school at the time, but people who'd never seen the show were talking about it. Yeah, and the fact that, like, it does seem that those... uh, the angels have come back in several episodes since, yeah. but they never quite hit that same peak of fear that they do in that episode. No, I think it's because of... I think removing the Doctor from the episode is a really great decision as well because it instantly removes that safety net that a lot of people yes. have. Um, and you just placed in this scenario with no prior context. So not only is it a mystery that you have to piece together with the characters, but you're genuinely struck with this foreboding sense of dread over the statues in the garden and it just creeps up on you so maliciously on a on a emotional level yeah and of course it plays into that you know stone angels are already kind of terrifying statues yes. in general you always think oh, I wonder, oh I yeah trust that it's like the the bad version of what toy story is I, just, yeah <laughs> and i think that's why it it genuinely frightened me so much as a kid as well because as a kid, you're more likely to have those thoughts of, well, what if the statues can move just when I'm not looking? And it's yeah. it's the exact kind of insidious, and it's such a simple idea as well. It's the kind of thing that very easily sticks in the mind of a kid. But also, you know, as an adult now, I'm still, <laughs> I still attack every statue I see. <laughs> I smash them with a sledgehammer. Yes. Um, and you're right as well, because it doesn't... Although I do... The other appearances they've made, they've never quite captured that same terror. But also I do... I'm thinking mainly of the Time of Angels episode that Matt Smith was in. But I do sympathise with that. Not sympathise, but I still like that episode because Moffat said he thought of Blink as being alien. So in that regard, the next episode, that two-parter is Aliens, which I yeah. which I quite like as a conceit. And also, much like Aliens, it has the advantages of being bigger and grander and more and more fleshing out their mythology. But also it has the downside of, because there's more of them, it doesn't feel as scary anymore. Yeah, it's less terrifying. Yeah, but they're still strong anyway. Yeah, um, I, I, for, for my list of childhood trauma yes. films, it's more of a, a collection of moments from yeah. films that 
got me. Mm-hmm. First up, I have the Scarab Beetle from The Mummy. Oh, yeah, going under the skin. Yeah. But, yes, because mm. that was terrifying. Luckily, Brennan Fraser is a an amazing man with a knife and just pops it out. Yes. Which is with no, not at yeah, all. No hurt. blood. So mm. very... No wound. He's so nothing. skilled. He is such a great surgeon. But the concept of something being under my skin yes. really freaked me out and as it's a kid. The sudden, and it still freaks me out now. But it's the suddenness of it as well. It just... I remember that moment as well because it's so... You hardly even have time to register it before the insect is inside him. Yeah, exactly. It's He picks it up and it's like, oh, it's in him. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, and I, like, there's a lot of different moments in the Mummy films which are kind of mm. scary, but the Scarab Beetle is the only bit that made me go, oh, I'm shivering from yeah. disgust, and I, I'm scared of this. Mm. Secondary to that was a film, this is one of the few films in my life that has ever made, given me a nightmare. Oh. Because I watched this when I was way too young. It's that kind of film where you come downstairs and it's on the TV and you shouldn't really be watching it, but you, you see it and you go, I'll sit down and watch this. Yeah. And that film is Anaconda. Oh, I've never seen Anaconda. Not, not the, yeah, not the Nicki Minaj music video. No. But no. the um, the movie from, is it from 2005, I believe? There's only one scene that really stuck in my head. Oh, it's from, it's from like 1997, never mind. Ah, well then. But there's one part of it and I think this is my skewed memory because I'm pretty sure that Owen Wilson is not in the movie, but I bu- I remember it as Owen Wilson and he stood on the edge of a dock and the snake comes up, grabs him and drags him under the water. And that's not necessarily the scary bit, but for me, the next shot is when the snake is underwater and swimming over the camera and you can see a basically uh, the equivalent of Han Solo in Carbonite, but a man in a snake's stomach sticking through the skin of the snake. And the concept of that terrified me. And I had a nightmare that the giant snake came in through my window that night. And ate you. I don't know if it ever did eat me, you know. I don't oh, remember that part yeah. of the nightmare. Well, I just remember it being in my room. That's sort of the... That is something I was going to... Not to question dream logic or anything. But if, I, if, if the snake ate you, then you wouldn't be able to see the most terrifying visual, which is someone pressed inside of the snake. Yeah, so I would see just the inside of the snake. Yeah. Why didn't your childhood self ever just think of that? You've been killed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that yeah. would... I would have been like, oh, this is fine. I'm yes. no longer scared. Fear gone. No problem. But no, that, that was one of the most traumatizing things I saw in film. And it's such a nothing moment, really. It's, pro- it's a probably, like... It's an awful film. It's yeah. not scary. <laughs> but that terrified me as a child. I have an even more somewhat embarrassing version of that as well which is actually there's there's a lot of these are pretty much embarrassing but it's fine because they're childhood yeah it's true um one that i wouldn't necessarily call this a trauma but it gave me a lot of thinking you know in toy story 2 where it's like the opening bit with buzz chasing after zerg yes and then zerg shoots buzz and like evaporates the top half of him yes and kills him yeah that traumatized me the as a kid buzz lightyear's legs well buzz lightyear's death from oh, being right. well, basically yeah. decapitated and dismembered okay i mean yeah it's quite a sudden jarring moment and especially as a yeah. kid because you don't really question it you don't you know maybe as an adult watching toy story you think well i know buzz is a toy so this he doesn't really go on space adventures but i feel as a kid you might not necessarily 
make that connection. You'll just be too distracted by, wow, cool space stuff and whatever. And yeah, then, and the oh, fact no, that like, you, you think dead. that he's going to... Like, you, you don't know that it's the game that they're yeah. playing until it pans out. So yeah. that, until that, for those few seconds, you're like, did Buzz just die? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really unclear. That was a, yeah, that was, was, I was referencing the, uh, did Jet just die? But, but, you know, oh, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, it was, it doesn't really work because it is, in fact, very clear that Buzz is obliterated. Yeah, he's just legs. That he's is dead. It. Yeah. But it's fine because it was it just, just a bit, it is sort of, do you think that gives, um, oh, not to get it too off track again, but do you think that gives Toy Buzz a bit of an existential crisis that he has to see himself die, a perfect replica of himself die on screen? And the only way anyone reacts to it meaningfully is Wallace Shawn's. Tyrannosaurus Rex just being annoyed that he can't play a video game. It would give it me would, a crisis. Yeah, it would. It, it did give me bit. a crisis. Yeah, it gave me a crisis, <laughs> and I were... wasn't even Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, really. <laughs> but no, that that was um, a very small, embarrassing yeah. sort of moment from my childhood. Another small one that I can pull from, refreshed by watching the film again relatively recently, is Wallace and Gromit. Curse of the Were Rabbit. Oh, okay. I can relate to this because and, I was yeah, I was I, scared by that. Just like the way they actually direct the Were Rabbit before you see it is actually terrifying. <laughs> so as a kid I remember being scared by not so much the monster itself, but the fact that Wallace knows it's happening to him at that point in the film when he yeah. finds out that he is and the fact that he has to then, you know, emotions scared me as a child. Because I was <laughs> I just I was too traumatized by the idea that he knew this would happen, and it's like a ticking clock for him at that point. At one point he's, in the film, he basically even like, says, "I'm a ticking time bomb." Yes, he says the tragic line, "I don't want to be a giant rabbit," and that that <laughs> cut to my soul. I'll tell you now. There was something about you know the big lump in the ground, and yeah. when uh, when Gromit is stood outside of the truck. And yes. the sign is blowing in the wind, and that transformation it, it genuinely scene spooked is, me. Yeah, the transformation scene is a. Uh, it's a horrible thing. It just, it cuts deeper yes. than you really ever think it would. But mm. then he's really cute and cuddly, so it it's fine in the end. I will say that final chase where Gromit flies that little plane and blocks the bullet, that's a great moment. That's a genuinely uplifting emotional moment yeah and the, and they swing Absolutely. by again in the high five it's ah oh, it's so good and the music swells up i i love that to this day i mean i love the whole film because it's brilliant yeah but yeah i do miss wallace and gromit i want more of Same. that content in my life yeah Any, anyway um what's more yeah we got emotional there over the lack of wallace <laughs> and gromit what's more please combat this with more childhood drama my final one for this one yeah. is jeepers creepers 2 Huh. Well, I've never no. seen that, so... It's basically... Um, I, again, I watched it when I was way too young. Yeah. And the creature in question regenerated by feasting upon humans. So there's a scene where he eats a guy's face or something, and it's like a school bus that's driving through like this abandoned country road, and then the tires get like slashed, and then it's steadily... They get worn down or killed off, and... Like, I don't even know if I could... It's like this kind of man-bat creature that attacks every 27 years, I think it is. And there was okay. just something about the setup and the way that the creature looked and attacked that genuinely just really creep me the hell out is jeepers um, is jeepers creepers the one with a young leo dicaprio or am i thinking I of a completely different thing you, the first jeepers creepers has got justin long in it oh well maybe not then 
because I'm there's like a some sort of horror franchise from the 90s that has a young Leo in it, but I can't remember what. Well, and Jeepers it's... Creepers is the early 2000s. Yeah, exactly. So with um yeah, John- Jonathan Long is. I don't think that Leo DiCaprio is in any of them, but his loss. Oh yeah, there's this one because the Jeepers Creepers one has got Justin Long in it. It's Critters three that has Leo in it. Oh, that explains it. But no, the Jeepers Creepers two. There's this um because the the kid from the first film is Justin Long, and then yeah. you see him in the field when they're driving past in Jeepers Creepers two, and then he doesn't have eyes. Like there's just two holes in his head where his eyes should be. God, goddamn, sco- spooky, spooky dooky, gives me. I don't. I don't like the design of it, and it scared me. But now I wa- I watched it again when I was older, and it sucks. God, it sucks so bad, and I felt embarrassed that I was ever terrified by it. Well, you know, you were again. You were a kid, so it's fine. Probably. Once we've completed this episode, I'm going to send you several pictures of this man creature, creepers, from Jeepers and then creepers. I'll either get it or I won't get it. Yeah. That's <laughs> Either I'll sympathise you and think, oh, I see how I could be scared as that as a child, or I'll just think, wow, you idiot. You idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that completes my list of the childhood trauma. Do you have anything yeah. anything traumatic from your childhood? Uh, well, I just had essentially a bunch of other Doctor Who episodes, because I feel kind of, Yours is a good list, I would say, because you've come up with stuff that's genuinely sort of out of place or unsettling for the mind of a child, whereas I've just Thank picked you. stuff that is still creepy, but was I was allowed to watch because it happened to be in a kids show but i would say is still pretty effective as far as scariness goes because other things i just that spring to mind were just you know the empty child or generally things like you know some of any of doctor who's like classic scary episodes that really stand out for although most of them at this era were written by stephen moffat so you, you know, he was really good at that back then. Yeah, he was good at the... The clockwork, yeah, the weird clockwork things scared me in the fireplace episode. Yeah, it's weird, because classic Doctor Who really gets a bad rep for the costume design, and how yeah. bad all the monsters look, because of the low yes. budget and the yeah. time. But then New Who has a really a, good... yeah. A like, lot of it really designs. holds up well, yeah. And I know it's only, you know, 15 years old, but it's still, it has, they, I think they knew how to work with their budget limitations a bit better because they actually, yeah, definitely, yeah, they didn't just put a guy in a tinfoil and in call a it a day. Bag. Yeah, and that, like, that's it, that's the terrifying monster of the week. It's in black and white. It's like no a plunger on a bin. Yeah. Well, it's in, I get why, because it's in, it's in black and white in the 60s with no repeats. So they're like, they're just out. Once they're out, they're gone. No one's ever going to look back at this. Yeah. So, yeah. The only other big one I can think of is pretty much a classic for any kid terrified by a film is the Judge Doom reveal in Roger Rabbit. Oh, God. But what yeah, I will say is the, the voice itself isn't what creeped me out. What creeped me out is after he's run over by the steamroller and when he gets up. Yeah, when he's flat. That, it's it's that, animated Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, that is horrifying to this day on any level but um i feel like melting as well yeah yeah i feel like people focus more on the voice reveal and also the fact that this is something i only sort of really picked up on more recently with roger rabbit they never reveal what he looks like like his christopher lloyd face is a mask He's a toon inside a rubber human suit, and they never reveal what he actually looks like. Even when this they come out like and all with, the... Um, it's the good place, isn't it? With uh, with Michael, where he's yes. wearing a skin suit, and he's actually like a lava 
tentacle yeah. octopus. Yeah. All I know is that he has an anvil for a hand and a giant saw and red eyes, and that's it. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Those those are some pretty strong characteristics, to be fair. But anyway, that is a very specific moment that scared me. So now we move on to our to our next category. What's the scariest single moment for you in very a horror nice. film? Very nice. Yeah. I've I've got a couple of different okay. uh, moments for this one again because they're so they're moments they don't require yeah. a lot of explanation mm-hmm. so we can probably run through these pretty quickly yes but two of them are very similar but in entirely different films mm-hmm. uh, do you recall the daniel uh, radcliffe woman in black film yes and so yeah there's one moment in that film that yeah. got me at the time and because of the way that my room was set up when i was younger it very much allowed that thought to creep back in and it's the scene where Daniel Radcliffe's in the room and then there's that black kind of cloak in the corner of the room which then lifts its head up and then lunges at him as the woman in black yeah yeah and no, that's because a, yeah, that's of, a good moment yeah there's that that moment scared me because I had dreams about that when I was younger because there was a dark corner of my room and I always thought oh god just please don't look up like <laughs> This is not what I want. Yeah, that 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 is a moment just really sat yeah, with me, and like one. was the only scary bit that actually got me from that film. But it's also very similar to another moment from The Conjuring Two, which is when is it Lorraine? Are they Ed and Lorraine Warren, aren't they? Yeah, is it with the the nun when they first appear? It's the painting that... of the nun. Oh right, yes. That picture that's in the back of the shot, and it's mm-hmm. the nun picture. And yeah. I, as soon as I saw it, I went. Don't you dare. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you dare. And they dared. They dared real bad. Yeah. Oh, good. Like, because you just, you see the painting and then mm. it cuts away and it cuts back and you're like, the painting looks different. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God. That, that bit got me. Like, in general, The Conjuring Nun is quite scary. Mm-hmm. But that moment in particular really got me because the scariest thing is again is the dread yeah that's always what scares me most in films it happened mm. the same in it chapter two with that scene with bev in the apartment with the old woman it's the yes, dread of that's what's the best coming. scene yeah that's the best scene in the film far and away because it actually builds on an element that then it sort of just leaves it to your imagination to pick up what's happening as it's going on yeah exactly it just gets me under so, the skin my main memory of it chapter two now is that weird moment where he screams and the guy vomits into his mouth and that music cue one of the strangest oh, God, choices yeah. in any film to be honest that i've seen in the last five years maybe yeah <laughs> i just why well, i can't i still don't know why but yeah that shouldn't take away from the fact that they do have a genuinely really great scene in that woman in bev's apartment yeah and it's again it's just dread it's always Mm. dread that gets me yeah one other moment that i was reminded of earlier today was a scene from the babadook oh which is when she pulls out down the covers and the babadook is on the ceiling yeah looking down at her yeah and that oh visually god Mm. jesus it's a very thank you yeah as movie monsters go i think babadook is like one of the most sort of visually upsetting just for that silhouette alone, <laughs> it's very yeah. ominous. I think the whole film I find very scary, so I didn't think of it in terms of moments so much because I love the central idea that, you know, the monster is this big representation of grief and how there isn't really any defeating it. They just sort of have to live with it, which for me is more terrifying than anything, any one moment. But yeah, there's a lot of very specific yeah. jumps in that film that are fantastic. I think it's an underrated film. Like, Oh yeah, definitely. 
William Friedkin said it was the scariest film he'd ever seen. And, you know, that guy directed The Exorcist, so he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I, just, I like yeah. his long fingers. They scare me. Oh, so, you got any more? I'll jump into some moments I picked out. Yeah, absolutely. It, right. This isn't scary in a jumpy way, but more... In fact, I think most of mine aren't really scary in a jumpy way, but more in a soul-crushing, devastating sort of way. The baby on the beach in Under the Skin is... Oh, the, God. Yeah, because you... I don't think any scene in a film has so completely and effectively demonstrated this character is not in any realm of humanity that we can relate to. There's no empathy there. There's no semblance of what we would recognize as being human. The fact that, you know, because yeah. it's a very, and again, it's a very normal sort of tragedy in a way. But the fact that Scarlett Johansson's alien just sort of watches this unfold and then is completely unflinching at it, it does get under your skin. Hey. Yes. I said the thing. There's the scene behind the diner in Mulholland Drive, which is, yeah. it's like the dread of finding yourself in a nightmare and then realising it. Because the guy describes his dream in detail as well, and then the film does such a weird but also genius thing where it just has him reenact the thing he's just described and it still scares you. Because you slowly begin to realise that he's reenacting the steps of the nightmare he's just described. And and again, it goes yeah. back to that dread thing. There's also the ending of The Vanishing, which is... I don't think I've seen The Vanishing. Oh, okay. So I won't go into any detail to it because... And I did suspect this would happen because it is the final nail in the coffin for the plot as a whole. But the sort of general premise of the film is there's this couple and so they pull over in a service station and then the girl walks in to, you know, get, I don't know what, the details don't matter. She just walks into the building and then vanishes. That's it. She's never seen from again. And the rest of the film is driven by the guy's attempts to sort of find out what happened to her again i won't spoil it but in the end we find out what happened to her and it's not particularly gruesome but it is so just completely there's such a grim finality to it it's just sort of this foreboding definitive point to an end that it's, it's almost hard to describe because there's no real pomp and circumstance about it you just are bluntly told this is what happened end and then that's it, and it just, it it's devastating. But, all of this aside, the moment that really sticks out to me isn't actually from a horror film, it's the murder by the lake in Zodiac. Oh. Because, and the thing is, I think it's so impressive as well, because the first murder scene in that film feels more directly out of a horror film, because you're essentially, you essentially have a, you know, it's nighttime and... It's these two kids in the car, both shot very suddenly. But then with the lakeside one, it's broad daylight and you're just presented with this horrible slow scene where it's very matter-of-fact, it's very procedural, where someone just appears over the horizon and then that's it. You know, they, he just quietly murders them. Yeah, there's there's no circumstance to it there's no it's just it does that is that is what happens there's no yeah. drama to it in yes a way. it's very it's very matter of fact and fincher does a really clever thing where he doesn't it feels like he doesn't dramatize it too much he just presents it as it happened yeah there's a dog th squeaking a toy in the background in my house somewhere <laughs> so 
I don't know how much of that is going to be heard. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Just the pure concept that it's a dog uh, excites people, so we should oh, be fine. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, so people will, people will forgive it for that. So yeah, and I think <laughs> Finch is Finch is very good at putting horrific moments in non-horror films because although even though yeah, absolutely, I, I generally think of Seven as a horror film, but even if you view it as a procedural, the sloth is the most terrifying thing you're likely to see. Oh. In oh, it's just so. And Disgusting. you're not, but I think it is part of the fact that you're never really primed for it. You don't expect yeah, that kind of scare to come. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And Gone Girl is sort of existentially terrifying as well on just a, what if you were just a guy, uh, just some clueless guy going about your life and this drop. Well, I know he's not exact. Ben Affleck isn't exactly innocent in that film by any means, but. The way that his life just so easily seems to fall apart with suggestion yeah, it unravels. It's, yeah, mm, it's it's worrying to think about. Yeah, I, I will say that um, you know a lot of films in that sense are carried by the performances, which would bring me on to our next section. Oh, that's yes, that's good. Which is um, the scariest performance. Now, okay, I'm gonna jump straight in with this one because I've okay. got one. That doesn't fit well. I've I've got two real quick ones, which are just yeah. the two versions of Pennywise from it, the ninety yeah. series and the Tim the Curry film, and I think. Bill Skarsgård. Bill yeah. Skarsgård. Yeah. yeah, both do a fantastic job. Yeah, um, but I don't think I really need to go in depth on how good they do because it's yeah. talked about a lot recently. Mm-hmm. I also have Doug Jones as just a general person because he does in, every he's creature, just Jerry. And everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah but and specifically. The Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth. That's a very good... Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, but it is... But that's good, because it, it's it's a physical performance, and it's fantastic, so yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. Scary, good design, yeah. but the way he moves yeah. makes me want yeah. to cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Can relate. Yeah, those are my quick-fire picks, and then the one that I've landed on is less of a, a horror pick and more of a... Just, just unsettling, and it's... Mm. Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Oh, that is a good one. That yeah, because there's something so terrifying about how callous he is that is far yeah. scarier than any creature or creature of the night, any supernatural being. It's just a man without morals, basically. He's just yeah, he's just doing what he needs to do. And I love how through his performance and the way the Coens frame him in that film, you have this sense of how he becomes more than just one man as well like he's this representation of evil and violence within society and it yeah the way he carves through everything and the but he's so unflinching about it as well that first scene where he strangles the police officer in the station and the camera just it focuses on their shoes and the scuffs on the floor for so long but then when it pans up to his face and it's this demonic gleeful look and the fact that that's the most emotion we really see him convey through the whole film is so chilling he gets me good and his hair is floppy and scary it's so good because it would be such a terrible hairstyle on anyone else it's the least threatening thing i've ever seen and somehow it becomes the most terrifying thing ever yeah you see anybody that looks like edna mode and suddenly you're terrified now yeah we had a beautiful three years between the incredibles and no country where that hairstyle was in and now suddenly it's ruined again (laughs) 
<laughs> you ruined it, Javier. Yeah. How could you? Oh, we were all styling. Disgraceful. I also put a brief mention for Kathy Bates in Misery. Yeah, there's uh, a... That's more of a psychological... Uh, yeah, you, that's, you yeah, that was my reaction oh, okay. rather than... <laughs> oh, right. <I laughs> that wasn't someone jumping on me. Struck, I thought you'd been struck by a thought suddenly. No, I was struck by a person. This ah. woman tackled me to the ground. Yeah. Okay, well, I've got two that I really want to... Not in, like, great depth, but uh, the first is Deborah Kerr in The Innocence because I think that is... And that's from the 60s, but it's such a... Her whole performance sort of carries that film because even though I love the film overall, and it's also a film that might get more attention because it's based on the same story as The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh. Yes, Turn of the Screw, which is considered a big staple of the unreliable narrator. Not genre, but sort of form of writing. And so what Deborah Kerr has to do is basically carry this foreboding ambiguity of is there sort of a supernatural presence or is she just someone slowly losing her mind and her performance really puts you into that doubt of not knowing which perception of reality to trust and as the film goes on you just slowly you're not sure whether you're watching a demonic entity slowly creeping its way into this house or if you're just watching someone going insane and being powerless to stop it So that's really good. And this is recent, and I feel it's, you know, it's so much part of the current conversation around horror that it might be a bit of a cliche to bring it up, but it's Tony Collette in Hereditary. I do want to give a shout-out to... I think his name's Alex Wolfe. I always get him confused with his character's name in Jumanji, and also the name... (laughs) And also the name that he has in Hereditary. So suddenly I just constantly mash up his name with various characters he's played and i don't know why no it is alex wolf okay i got it right yeah because he's great as well but because tony collette's performance starts in this painfully real place of grief and then just slowly unfurls from that where a lot like deborah kurt you feel as if the entire film hinges on her own slowly cracking psyche. And again, you it feels so powerless to watch her either, you know, and whether or not the supernatural entities are real or not sort of becomes irrelevant because you are watching someone either through outside influence or internal influence breaking down. And it's yeah. this long drawn out emotional devastation. Again, it's the, it's the hereditary does it so well. Is that it is that sense of dread. It's not yeah. fear necessarily. It's always dread, and that's what really sinks in with you. Is you you feel the dread of oh god, what's happening next? Yeah, and because you empathise with that basic grief she goes through, as she starts to unravel, you start to worry about your own, not you know, not your own psyche, but your own investment in her as a character. Because it's there's a lot to be said about just seeing awful things happen to people you like and no i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say i like her in that film but you do empathize with her it's the same yeah. sort of thing that happens to carrie at the start of that film you're instantly endeared to her and then nothing ever gets better it's a bloody good film it is but speaking of is it a scary overall film well that's for debate that's that's because... what we will say next yes okay now i i oh. feel like i spoke first on the scariest performance so i'm gonna allow you to go first oh you will segment. then okay that's fair so i've got so many that spring to mind and they are well, I'm, I'm gonna mention a couple but they are very much classics of the genre so you've got the exorcist and which is so terrifying because you from the moment you have to go up those stairs towards reagan's room it feels like you're just strapped into this roller coaster that you want to get off of 
where you, you I'm know, very aware slowly, of that feeling. Yeah, where you just, especially in the third act, where they just the two priests have to go up into the room, and it feels like this complete. You want them to turn away so bad, but you you know you can't because there's a you know innocent girl trapped in there. But it's so insidious in how they just rope you into it again and again where you feel as if you could take every opportunity to run away but it's not allowing you to i also really love the shining just for its atmosphere alone and eraser head and i bring those two up at the same time because kubrick studied eraser head a lot in making the shining because he wanted to replicate the way lynch brought this constantly eschewed atmosphere of dread because it's almost indescribable within both of those films, because even though Eraserhead is a lot more overtly weird, both of them have this constant, almost humming sense of dread, where you can't quite place your finger on what's wrong, but you know from the outset something's very off. Yeah, I think that's very on-brand for, for Lynch as yeah. a filmmaker. Mm. But the, the one I sort of landed on as the absolute most terrifying from start to finish was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, which of, version? The original. Okay. But yeah, good. not surprisingly not the uh, Michael Bay produced remake. I don't know, that is a fun film. Uh, well, you know, sort of if it's I not forgot, scary, yeah, but it's fun. If I forgot the original existed, I'd find it more fun. But it's the, true. <laughs> I think it's when you look at that original film, what Toby Hooper does in portraying the landscape of America is so, and again it is a bit like The Shining where you can't quite I say this you can't quite place your finger on what's wrong with it. I say that because the opening shot is literally a rotting corpse in the sun. But, that being said, it's still very ominous in how slowly it creeps under your skin. And the fact that it's, you know, all these long, drawn-out daytime shots that are so ominous in... I don't know how often I've used that word. But it, it really slowly gets into your head, the landscape of this... And again, it's just a normal... Texas landscape, but it feels almost apocalyptic for how much the violence and ugliness gets baked into it. And then, of course, when the murders start happening, it just reaches whole new levels of horror because then it starts yeah. to hit you in that visceral, okay, people are being put on hooks and cut up with chainsaws now. But again, it's through suggestion. It's not, you know, it's not a bloodbath. It, you, there's this story about how people who saw the film would describe it later and talk about things that straight up weren't in there you know yeah, that how they would think oh they were across. you know there were limbs being chopped off and there was blood spurting in everywhere and it's like there isn't really but you are so tuned into seeing that as a suggestion that you then just succumb to your own worst imagination yeah i think one of my favorite things about more classic um, and older horror films is that you didn't have the internet with the um, the full synopsis breakdown where yeah. so a lot of urban legends could come out with films like The Exorcist you know yeah, um, being yeah. haunted and things mm. like that and it's so unrelenting as well for it because it's only you know it's a relatively short film but it is from the moment they step inside that house you know just to investigate what's happening it's like it gets to everything gets turned up to 11 and plot wise it's essentially just five teenagers independently walking into a house and all but one of them being horrifically murdered but in doing so they just and this is where i think the thin characterization of it becomes an advantage because it becomes this broader look at violence within american society and within human society and you know not to get too we live in a society but it feels <laughs> it feels like a very deliberate move on hooper's part to keep things minimal 
it's bloody scary. It is. But the um, am I right in saying? I think if I'm remembering rightly, doesn't you know that final scene where he's um he's swinging about in the sunset with his yeah. chainsaw? Yeah. Is is that was a real chainsaw, wasn't it? When he did that, I think I I yeah. I'm I think not it was sure. a fully active chainsaw. Maybe yeah. Um, for that part, which is terrifying to me because he's swinging yeah. about like a madman. Yeah. Well, that's also the. It's also just the general emotion of why he's doing it in the first place because you know she gets away but you're just left with this final and you know she doesn't kill the big bad thing she just gets away from it yeah and it's just it's just left for another and it's almost it it seems yeah but leatherface seems almost indifferent to it he just ends dancing manically in the sun swinging a chainsaw around and then cut to black. Yeah, and it's it's far more interesting to have landed on your final villain. You you that's yeah. your. It's we don't care about the final girl escaping. Really, we're yeah. focused on Leatherface as an ending. Mm. Because that yeah, is I'm, yeah, that's sort of the center of the film in a lot of ways. It doesn't disregard humanity, I think, but it it's very much more concerned with the like instruments of murder. And in this case, it happens to be a horrible face-wearing serial killer <laughs> which is, which i think anyone can fear so you know in a if we're talking about yeah universal it's very universal horror. yeah exactly now see I'm, I'm glad you went for um quite you know more classical picks yeah. with your scariest films because i've gone quite contemporary with my choices no. okay that's yeah that's fine because my general justification is that i've always struggled to get myself into the mindset of classic films yeah. because i having grown up post a lot of older films yeah i struggle to release myself from the knowledge of the time that i'm in yeah and watch yeah. them as they were when they came out yeah it is sort of it's to, and also the influence they have because it's very easy to get trapped in in sort of seeing cliches even though quite often the film you're watching basically invented them yeah exactly it's very hard to yeah. appreciate it for what it is but also i think it's fine to it's good to focus on a modern angle as well because you shouldn't there shouldn't be this um bar of well this can't be considered one of the scariest ever because it only came out 10 years ago or whatever yeah so i feel I like that's, in the sense of yeah yeah like it's still good to I discuss can... things in any context regardless of what era they came out in yeah i just mean in the sense of I've, i'm less likely to be scared of you know, oh yeah, yeah. A person that looks yes, a lot yeah. less intimidating. It's yeah. the whole Cyberman thing from the sixties compared yeah, yeah. to two thousand and five. Like mm. I'm far scared, more scared yeah. of the guy that's not wearing the tin. But suit. on the one hand, that and I do get that. But on the other hand, I sort of the ones that still work, it makes me admire them all the more. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. you think, wow, they've stood up to forty years of scrutiny, and the you know the budget limitations of being forty years old. And it's still effective. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that, enough. That's good directing. Enough sidestepping. What is your selection? I've gone for The Descent as well. Oh, yes. I did consider Which... that putting... Put, I did consider putting that on mine as well because, wow. God, it's 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 oh. dread incarnate. It's like... so, And it's... I think everyone is claustrophobic to an extent. Like, yeah. I can't... You know, people love caving and whatever. Some people do. But I can't imagine most people look at a dark crawl space and think, yeah, that appeals to me. Uh, yeah, And even, yeah, and he, sorry not to interrupt, but like even outside, because I just, it's just dawned on me, you picked it and I feel like I've talked a lot so far on. No, that is, it's fine because it, that's what it is. But in terms of the way the film works, it is so cramped, so closed off and so dark that you don't get a second to breathe for the entire film. And it is so hopeless God, yeah. it's hopeless. And yeah, that is, that's are, what's most terrifying. Yeah, because you're completely isolated from any kind of help or any kind of 
solace from it. Yeah, it's not like you're going to run into mm. some other people down there that yeah. have been surviving for ages. Mm. You're just trapped. Yeah, even before the monsters turn up, it feels like a nightmare scenario of just being caved in, essentially. Yeah, it just yeah. gets me. Mm. And the, with all the different endings that they released, where it's yeah. like she came out, but then she wasn't actually out. And um, I, I feel like, well, yeah, I. this is a bit of a sadistic answer, but I do prefer the sort of original ending where, you know, it's just everything is hopeless, we're all going to die. Because, yeah. and it, but it feels more fitting for the kind of film it is because it's nihilistic and brutal and it doesn't take any prisoners. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what you want from true horror, really, for me. Yeah. I want to feel horrified. I want to feel like at the end, I yeah. don't feel safe. I feel, Yeah, I'm all for having some sort of hope. Like I always, well, you know, it, it's very bleak. But I feel like The Exorcist does end on a weirdly hopeful note because so much of that film is about faith and your own, you know, someone's own relation to whatever comforts them in the worst nightmare possible. But I think with The Descent, because so much of it is this unrelenting, nightmarish vision that yeah the more brutal ending just fits yeah that's my that's my 2005 pick oh right. i have an it's even another. more recent pick oh okay which is midsummer oh right yeah because i, 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 I get that cannot one. yeah i cannot encapsulate another film that has made me feel the sense of dread and foreboding horror that is about to happen that midsummer has i was never scared by midsummer at all yeah. But in terms of what I'm looking for for a horror film, there was never a moment in Midsummer where I felt like things were okay. Right from the outset, you're just disturbed and traumatized, and then you're never off that train. Yeah, the opening shots of oh, God. Like, the, the yeah. sister doing the stuff, I just. Yeah. You're immediately like, oh my God, this is where we're opening? Yeah. And then I remember with the guy on the cliff, I kept thinking, well, we're going to cut away soon. There's going to be a cut. There's going to be a cut there. Wow, there wasn't a cut. Okay, this is what we're going with. And it's, yeah. And you are right, because there's no... I Well, the guy on the cliff is kind of awful. But there's no singular moment of jump scare, I would say. There's no one moment yeah. that sticks out as being particularly horrifying. But the entire film has this attitude and tone of being so all-consuming. Like, there's no escape. And the fact that they're so isolated there as well. They just turn up, and then there's never any sight of the outside world. Yeah, and the fact that it, it does begin in the outside world, it makes yeah. it feel all the more trapping when they suddenly mm. are in this new place. Yeah, and it's in broad daylight as well, every part of it. So again, you're just stuck in this mode of there's no safe place whatsoever because again yeah, horror like horror convention teaches us that we'll be fine in the daylight darkness is what will kill us but then in midsummer so much of it is in broad daylight that you start to lose hope of ever finding any sort of way out essentially yeah and i i just i respect it on such a, a level for the one scene where christian has to uh, perform the ritual with the girl yeah in like the that and because that that scene is horrifying yeah but it's amazing that they managed to like that scene has probably been done in so many different films with a woman being you know sexually humiliated in some yeah. form but it's so rare to see a, a man be like not, not yeah necessarily to turn like, that around and yeah yeah and to it's... be completely like horrified by his own act there yeah and it gets worse in the long run because then it's all part of this indoctrination, effectively. Yeah. For and it's and it it feels scary in that regard because it feels like the you know I've never been in a cult. I'll full confession <laughs> now, but 
it it does feel like a really realistic depiction of it because they are essentially exploiting her own emotional turmoil and creating this place where she can empathize with people but it's still manufactured it's one they've created yeah, it's like they have they have surrounded her and have then created something for her to react to and then comforted her for the thing they've traumatized her with. It's just such like there's so much we talked before about the background imagery, which um, yeah, oh yeah, and especially in Midsummer, there's so many yeah. the little subtle the, things in the background. Yeah, yeah. the face. I don't even know bushes. how that works. No, it don't make sense to me. But it, it's yeah. there and it's horrifying. Yeah, it's it's just awful, but also great. Yeah, and that's what that is truly what we want from horror is for mm. it to be absolutely horrible, but also great. Yes, but I, it doesn't even feel fun in that sense. I mean, it, it's great to watch, but it feels so... The really good horrors almost get under your skin in a way that makes you uncomfortable. We've all had fun watching a guy in a hockey mask murder some teenagers. That's just innocent fun. But the kind that really, <laughs> the kind that really sticks with you is, I think, the most affecting. Because yeah, it's I think viscerally upsetting. There's, well, there's, yeah, there's two different... Well, there's a couple of different types of horror films yeah. that you want. But I think the best kind of horror film for me personally is one that you only need to watch once because you never want to see it again. Yeah, I actually it it has affected you. Yeah, I made that connection earlier because I was sort of researching for this and I looked up Roger Ebert's review of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and he only gave it two and a half stars, which initially I thought, oh, that's disappointing. You know, well, not disappointing, but I thought, oh, I guess we don't agree on that one. But then... Reading his review, he's actually very positive on it. He's just sort of got this constant state of, I don't know how I can recommend anyone to watch this. <laughs> this is not, it's the opposite of a good time. I feel bad telling people to see it. But it's also, it's yeah. very well made. So, you know, go nuts, I guess. But because he, you know, he can, depends what you want. Yeah, because he compares it to, um, you know, Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby and, you know, a bunch of already esteemed horror classics. But again, they have this similar thread of this isn't the kind of horror that you just walk out of innocently anymore. It just infects yeah, your this mind. This is the one that will crush you. Yes. So, yeah, that's that's a suitably. Oh, I forgot about stuff. Of course, like all these films have all been great, but my truly scariest film of all time oh. is Scooby Doo, the live action movie. Oh, yes, of um, course. Yeah. Because of all, the I forgot we made a pledge. You're always going to go back to that in the end. Yeah. Oh. Uh, those creepy, creepy monsters that bubble oh, and explode. That would have been quite a good one for childhood trauma, to be fair, because I do. I did have it on the list, to be fair. Uh, yeah. Not so much the creatures, more the idea of being in a body that's not your own and just being a little floaty head, you know, yeah. flying around in a big pool of people. And you'll be like, hey, is that? Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, he's gone. Too late. Yeah, Some dog. And you'll never him be up. able to steer because it's hard to steer when you're pure spirit. Yes. Oh, is that <laughs> is that Sarah Michelle Gell? Oh, she's gone as well. Okay. Bye. We'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know.